So a couple of months ago, um, I don't eat cereal, very much cereal, but I had this like eight o'clock at night craving for cereal. So I start rummaging around and I find like a third of a bag of Almond Delight. You guys like Almond Delight? It is delightful. So I'm like, yeah, win. So I grabbed like the biggest bowl I could and I poured the whole thing, just this nice heaping bowl of Almond Delight. And I grabbed the milk and I just start chugging the milk on it and it came out in chunks. I was like, oh no, right? So then I'm like trying to, trying to like get out the pieces, you know, like maybe I can save some of this, right? But it completely saturated it. And I was just like, oh, I just threw it away. And you know how when you get something in your mind and then it's taken away from you, you're angry? That's where I was at. I was just like, oh man, it's the cross I must bear. <laughs> All right, that's Gideon. He's gonna go sour and everything that Gideon touches in chapter eight is ruined by him. It's just like grenade, anyone in his vicinity is gonna be hit with his grenade. It's such a drop. You're just like, wow, Gideon is awesome. Whoops, not so awesome, right? I wish there was no Judges chapter eight. I do, all right? You want these people to be like heroes of the faith, but they're not. So I call it chapter eight bankruptcy. And if you wanna avoid a chapter eight in your own life, Gideon is the example of what not to do. And he just has these things that start to creep into him that lead to, well, chapter nine's even worse, right? So it's just, oh no, look out for this. He has this incredible victory, but great victories in the faith are not the antidote to failure. In fact, someone once went through the whole Bible and looked at every character and they found only one in 10 finished strong. The other 90% face plant. And Gideon, sadly, is one of those, right? So let's check it out. Chapter eight, verse one. Then, so if you haven't been here, Gideon called by the Lord to free the land from the Midianites. He has these tests he puts God through. God does it for him. He gathers a big army, 32,000 people. God says, that's too many. Um, you guys will think you won this war, so send some people home that are afraid. 22,000 leave, uh, that's still too many. He ends up with 300. And they don't have a sword or a spear among them. They have trumpets, right? It's the jazz band. So the jazz band and some lights, and they end up, with God's plan, sending the Midianites, 135,000 into chaos where they kill each other, right? So now it's mop-up duty. So about 120,000 have died. There's 15,000 that are on the run right now. So that's where we pick it up. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? 
and they accused him fiercely. If you like Hebrew, it's actually part of his name right here, fiercely, but that's a freebie. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he, <coughs> he said to the men of Succoth, terrible name for a town, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when Yahweh has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Can you already see it? Right? So number one, he's inconsistent. My girls played soccer. Girl soccer can be physical. It all depends on the ref, right? Sometimes refs call things, you know, pretty tight and you can't really do much jostling. Other refs call things, you know, a little bit looser, there's more jostling. The one thing my girls hated was this, inconsistent. Like there's jostling and all of a sudden it's, the, the refs call it a little differently, right? They want consistency. Gideon here is inconsistent in the way he deals with Ephraim and the way he deals with this other tribe that makes up Sukkoth, Sukkoth and Penuel, right? He's inconsistent because he's starting to play a game, right? So with Ephraim, here's what he does. They're a giant. They're a powerful tribe. They are massive. And they come in the middle of the battle, right? He's in the middle of the battle. And they don't come to be like, wow, that was awesome. We're free from Midian. Thank you. What do they do? They come and complain. By the way, when you have a great victory in your faith, you can expect an attack. And often, it's from God's people. Sadly, right? It's the kind of people that show up after the battle after all the hard work and argue about how you did it. You should have done it like this. You should have said that. Why didn't you say this? Why didn't you include that? She's like, really? Really, there was a great victory. Why can't you just enjoy the great victory instead of picking it apart, right? Expect it. Jesus has baptized, Matthew chapter three. The heavens open. The father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Massive victory. Chapter four, Satan attacks him. 
It's the pattern in scripture. Look at Elijah, same thing happens to him. Massive victory on Mount Carmel against the 450 prophets of Baal. Next point, he's so depressed, he's suicidal. You can expect it. And here's Ephraim's issue. They were easily offended, right? Why? They wanted the glory. They wanted the gold. Status. You took status away from us. We're the big man on campus. Why didn't you call us, right? This is going to be their pattern. They do the same thing in chapter 12. Same exact thing. Are there groups today in our country that just seem really easily offended? <laughs> like they're just waiting for something to be offended at. Like tear down things. Like they tore down the elk statue in Portland. Like I love that elk statue. I'm like, what did the elk do to you? It's just an elk. Like why are you tearing down that elk statue? San Francisco is renaming 44 high schools. One of them is named Abraham Lincoln High School. Somehow, Abraham Lincoln has done something, you know, 150 years ago that, okay, I mean, it's insanity. But before I start looking out at them, I always need to turn the mirror on myself. Are Christians like Ephraim? Do we run around looking for opportunities to be offended? I think we need to stop. Listen, unbelievers are gonna sin. Okay, that's fine, right? Like there was this uproar over that Satan song and the Satan shoes. I'm like, just ignore him. The best thing Christians could ever do is be like, ah, that's silly and stupid. Who cares? Sinners are going to sin. Unbelievers are going to sin. Ignore them. Don't be all offended by them, right? I, I think Christians should be the least offended people in the world. Because here's what happens when we become the kind of people that are always offended. Then you grow into these grumpy people, right? Where everything offends you. Oh, I hate those man buns, man. Why do men wear those man buns? I hate holy jeans. Why do people wear rips in their jeans? I hate those kind of shirts. I hate loud cars. I hate jacked up trucks. I hate expensive coffee. I hate sidewalks with people on them. What? Right? It just keeps going. You're just like, stop it already. I hate the traffic. I hate the weather. What are you going to do about the weather, right? Just shut up. Don't be those kind of people, right? Don't be Ephraim. Just, you know, God's got it. I'm not going to play about it, right? But what does Gideon do? He placates them. Bro, come on, man. The gleanings, the leftovers of Ephraim are better than our best. Are you kidding me? And you got the captains, right? Is that what he should have done? I do not think so. Because this thing in Ephraim is going to grow. And when we get to chapter 12, here's what's gonna happen to Ephraim. They pull the same thing, easily offended. But this time, 42,000 Ephraimites die. It's bad news. It grows and grows and grows and it becomes deadly. You know what Gideon should have said? God's hand was on me. He chose the 300 people. I did not choose them. I wanted a much bigger army. I would have loved to have you guys with me. God said no. If you got a problem with it, deal with God, not with me. That's what he should have done. But he doesn't. He placates them. 
He placates them, right? I've had a policy now. And my policy is this. I wanna deal with things as quick as I can. I don't want them to get worse and worse and worse and deadly, right? Because it's easy to deal with a sapling. When something's brand new, you can deal, you can bend that sapling all over. But if you wait 15 years, you're not moving that oak tree anymore. Deal with it. If, if maybe if Gideon would have said that to them, he would have saved 42,000 lives. Hey, God did this. This is a you problem. This is not a me problem. Do you go talk and pray to God about why you weren't included. I have no idea why God chose me, but God did and talk to him, but he doesn't. He placates them because he was afraid. He was afraid to say, this is what God did, period. Right? So with Ephraim, the big, mighty, strong tribe, it's placation. But these two twin cities, they're tiny little cities, right? They're across the Jordan River. So the Jordan River goes through what's called the Great Rift Valley. It is the deepest valley on planet Earth, right? It's super, super hard to get through. It's a natural barrier that has protected Israel for a long, long time. So Israel has always had this natural protection against the Transjordan, right? Where the Midianites were at. So they had this natural barrier. barrier. Succoth and Penuel did not have this barrier. It means this, when the Midianites came in, guess who suffered first? Succoth and Penuel. Probably time and time again. They just got trashed as the Midianites came through, right? So they knew, they knew, oh, this is hard, right? Repeated problems. So Succoth and Penuel are like, hey, security is important to us. Ephraim, it was status. To these guys, it's security. Hey, we can't help you because we'll get trashed if you don't actually do this. Don't count your chickens before they hatch, Gideon. We don't know. We don't know anything about that, but we gotta look out for our safety. From this point forward, the point that Gideon crosses the Rift Valley, God didn't tell him to, right? The point that Gideon crosses the Rift Valley, he pretty much leaves God behind. He's gonna do it now his way. He's gonna do the things that he wants to. He actually becomes a different kind of person. He was God's servant, praying, checking. Are you sure, God? I don't know about this. It's, you know, 32,000 too many. Like he was in this conversation with God. God was guiding him. Now he's General Gideon. Before he was this kind of reluctant soldier. Now he's an enraged soldier. And he knows that he can deal with these two cities differently because might is right now. I couldn't do this Ephraim because there's a lot of people there. But these two cities, might is right. I'm gonna come back and whoop up on you. It's like he has a split personality now. It's no longer doing things because of a godly character that's within him and driving him to do things because of his godly character. It's now he's calculating. Well, with, with Ephraim, I better placate them because they're big and they could hurt me and I might need them later. But with these two cities, I'm gonna trash them. Trash them, calculating what's most helpful for him. You know, life is really easy when you live and you're honest and you do things out of the character that God has put in you. And life gets really tricky when you don't. When you're always calculating, you're always trying to figure things out, it's really hard then. Like, how, what do you do? How do you deal with this person? Like, it gets really difficult. Did you know this? 
that when you lie, you become dumber? It's absolutely been proven. Here's why. And you, when you tell the truth, guess what your brain has to do? Just store the truth. That's it. I told the truth. I can put that into a file, truth file. But when you tell a lie, guess what your brain has to do? Uh-oh. Okay, it has to start figuring out, okay, who knows the truth? And I gotta make sure and have this story for the people that know the truth. And then here's the lie, who knows the lie? And so your brain is actually spinning this plate all the time for your lie. Like, okay, okay, who knows the lie? Who doesn't know the lie? And the more lies you have, the more plates your brain is spinning. And pretty soon you're just like, because you're spinning too many lies. Like, well, that explains a lot of people I know. (laughs) When you just act consistently with the character that God has put into you, life is just easy. You're not spinning plates. You're not trying to calculate things. You're just doing the right thing. And life is easy. This isn't what Gideon's doing now. He's calculating. Might is right, I'll take this and I'll do that, okay? So here's what he does. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army about 15,000 men. That's what's left. All who are left of the army of the people of the east for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Keep those numbers in mind. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jog Beha and attacked the army for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle uh, by the ascents of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he went to the men of Succoth and said, behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. <laughs> That's a really kind way of saying what he did. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He's inconsistent. And now he overreacts. Why does he overreact? He says, you guys taunted me. You taunted, you embarrassed me in front of my 300 men. Right? You ta- Did they taunt him? No, they were honest. They just said, hey, man, like, we don't know yet if you're going to win this battle. And you put us in a really precarious position. So they didn't taunt, but he takes everything personally. He's not like, hey, I get it. I get you're on this side of the Rift Valley. We kind of have that protection. You don't. Midian just trashes you all the time. I get it. You got to be careful. No, you taunted me. So he rolls them up in blackberry bushes and drags them around for a bit. Like, whoa. Then he comes over to the tower. This is the tower that commemorates when Jacob his name changed to Israel, the father of the nation, when he has a dream 
and the heavens open and a ladder comes down. It happened at Penuel. This tower commemorates this incredible thing that happened in their nation's history. So what does he do to it? He destroys it, right? It'd be like somebody destroying the Statue of Liberty, which just may happen. I don't even know anymore. Goodness, right? It's like that. And then he kills all the men. Over what? A sandwich, right? You are supposed to be reading this going, whoa, that seems a little bit harsh over a sandwich. You drag people through blackberry bushes. You destroy a very important reminder to Israel about God's protection, even of a really, really scoundrel Jacob. And then you kill a whole bunch of people over a sandwich. Dude, Gideon, you're being silly. You're being silly. And that can happen to people. There's a story told of Winston Churchill. After the war, he's retired. And he and his servant had a disagreement. And so Winston Churchill went to his servant and he said, you hurt me. And the servant said to Winston Churchill, yeah, you hurt me. To which Winston Churchill replied, yes, but I am a great man. That can happen to us. Something grows in us. And we take things way too personally. We don't see the other side of a situation. And then we start getting like Gideon. We start getting like him, where we overreact. So Gideon's humility in chapter six, verse 15, where he says this to the angel that comes to call him. Hey, my tribe is the least. My clan is the least. My family is the least. And I'm the least in the family, right? He had humility back then. Now it's turned into this pride. Pride turned angels into devils. And it does the same thing to men today. That's why the Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And in due season, he will lift you up. If you are walking around and you're like Ephraim, easily provoked and easily offended, or you're like Gideon, overreacting, everything's personal, you take everything personal, maybe, maybe it's pride and look out for it. It can turn good men like Gideon into devils. Be careful. So he's inconsistent, he overreacts. In verse 18, then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They are, they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As Yahweh lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna 
and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. He's vengeful. Vengefulness is the ultimate expression of self-centeredness. That's what vengefulness is. It's you did this to me and I will get back at you. Vengefulness is the ultimate expression of being self-centered. So he says to these guys, verse 19, you killed my brothers, prepare to die. That's what he says to them, (laughs) right? So we're reading this and we've just been told that because of Gideon, 120,000 of these king's men were dead. Right? Because war is brutal. War is brutal. That's what happens in war. So Gideon now, his brothers died in the war. And he's upset about it. Well, bro, 120,000 of these king's men are dead because of you, right? Because this is war. And this is what happens in war. Don't take things so personally. This is war, right? And so these guys reply to Gideon and they say something that is fascinating, right? That they're just like you. They look like sons of a king. So maybe, and you're reading back now into the story, maybe Gideon, his crew, his family, was some kind of ruling crew. Because if you remember back to the story, where was the altar to Baal? It was in his dad's backyard. You don't get the altar to Baal in your backyard unless you're somebody pretty important. So really what we're kind of reading back into this is, oh, hmm, Gideon must have been something. And I think Gideon hears this, hey, you're like a king. And I think it actually plants a seed in his heart that we'll see sprout in a second. It sprouts where he's like, hmm, yeah, I am a king. See, flattery, flattery, it's okay to smell it like cologne, but it's deadly to drink it. And Gideon is gonna guzzle it right here. And so he calls his son and says, hey, son, Jether, come over here and kill these two kings. And his son doesn't do it. Just because he's afraid, because he's a young man. I wonder if he was afraid because he'd never seen his dad act like this before. Like my dad is acting in a way I have never seen him before. And you start reading this story and who do you begin to like better? These noble pagan kings who are like, hey, you cut our heads off. Or the crazy, crazy representative of God named Gideon, right? You start like, hmm, hmm. He didn't bother asking his son, why don't you want to kill these two kings? He didn't bother asking his 300 men, hey, do you think this is the right thing to do right now to cut these kings' heads off? He doesn't do any of that. You know why? Because he's the hero. He's the man God used. I don't need to consult other people. I don't need to ask anyone. I'm the man now. I'm the hero. It's a danger, right? Prosperity is more dangerous than poverty. Gideon was doing a lot better when he was hiding in a wine press trying to get a little bit of wheat. Prosperity 
is always more difficult to handle than poverty. It's the true measure of character. And Gideon fails. Gideon fails. And each one of us has to be careful, right? You can start, well, God used me, and you can get a hero complex, and right? Like I planted a church. Like this building right here, right? It's pretty amazing. I asked for a million dollars in a month. You know, right after I asked that, I went to this pastor's meeting on a Thursday where the pastors of the valley get together, and the guy that was leading it said, hey, Matt just asked his congregation for a million dollars in a month. Every pastor in that room, guess what they did? They started laughing. One pastor came over to me and said, hey, man, if you need help raising money, you can come by my office. I'll show you how. I'm like, well, he who laughs last, laughs loudest, right? That can start getting into you. Look, look what God has done. It's subtle. God's used me. You can start, I'm type A, man. I'm driven. And you can start getting to the point where I can cross the Rift Valley. I don't really need God anymore. I know how to preach. I know the Bible. I know how to counsel. People have a stump the chump question. Most likely I've got the answer for it now. You know, I've been doing this long enough. Like you can just start to be like, mm, I crossed the Rift Valley. I don't need God anymore. I, I kind of got it over here. And things start to grow in you. That's why Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. When you think you stand, ooh, beware lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. I have that underlined in my Bible. I think about Rabbi Zacharias this last year. Brilliant man, talented, type A, knew the Bible, had the answers, had it all, didn't need to depend on God anymore. Ooh, and something grows in us. Something grows grows in us. You, me, the church marches strongest when we are on our knees saying, God, without you, we can do nothing. You could have chose anyone to do what I'm doing. And let me never forget that. That what matters is not who I am, it's who you are. And you've got to come back to that time and time again, or you will in your own heart in my heart, I'll cross the Rift Valley. That's what I'll do. I got this now. I got this now. And the best measure of that is, how's my prayer life? Because you see in chapters six and seven, Gideon is so timid, he's praying all the time. God, okay, well, okay, that test worked. Okay, well, how about this? Okay, you just, why? Because he's desperate. He knows, without God, I can't do this. This side of the Rift Valley, he doesn't even bother praying doesn't consult, counsel, no accountability, nothing. Be, be careful. So here's how it ends. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Wow. Be a dynasty. Not just you be king. You have a line of kings stretching down for the rest of history. Because you saved us from Midian. 
Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw it in the center. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels, 41 to 70 pounds, depending on what you go by, of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. So they throw some king garments in there too. And besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel, it's his name, Gideon, the son of Joash went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abrazites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh, their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Final one. His walk and his talk are enemies. So they come to him. Hey, Gideon. Be our king. And what does Gideon say? No, no, I won't be your king. But give me taxes, give me a bunch of cash, give me those kingly garments, right? I want some of those too. Throw those in there. I want some kingly clothes to wear around. Um, I'm gonna get a harem for myself. I'm gonna have 70 kids, 70 sons, probably that many daughters as well, you know, just odds would say. 140, right? He's got 140 children. That's insane. Reminds me of our kids' wing right now. Like it's a refugee camp down there on Sundays. It's incredible, right? So just kids everywhere, right? Got a harem, dresses like a king, all that stuff. And then he has this son. And he names his son Abimelech. Guess what Abimelech means? My dad is king. That's literally what the name means. Melech is king, right? My dad is king. <laughs> right? Be our king. No. His walk and his talk don't match. Here's what I think. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and swims like a duck and flies like a duck, guess what that means? It's going to win some football games and it's a duck. Okay? So he's saying no but he lives exactly like a king, dresses like a king, 
has a harem like a king, names his son, my dad's king, <laughs> is walking and talk, do not match. And he makes this ephod. Now an ephod was the garment that only the priests were supposed to wear. They were only used in one certain way, that was it. But he makes his own. He creates his own little private religion. He is the first judge that during his lifetime, the people go astray. He leads them astray. He's the one. And the rest that Israel has, this is the last time Israel have a rest in the book of Judges. That from Gideon, really because of Abimelech, from his son forward, things are really, really, really bad. This ephod, which was supposed to represent something, a priestly duty, becomes an idol that people worship. Do we do the same thing today? Probably. Like people, and the cross matters, no doubt, but a cross means nothing. Do you know that? It's just two sticks. What's important? The work that Jesus, God in the flesh, did on the cross. The cross is meaningless without the work. It's what Jesus would say in the, the New Testament. The people would swear by the gold of the temple. And Jesus is like, you're insane. The gold of the temple is meaningless. The only reason why that temple means anything is because who dwells there? God himself dwells there. That's why the temple has meaning. You guys are insane, right? And sometimes people, like, they, they venerate almost the cross. It, just, it drives me crazy. Right? So does that mean we should not wear a cross? You should not wear a cross if you wake up in the morning and you worship it. Then you should not wear a cross. If you're thinking, hey, this cross somehow protects me by wearing it, somehow I have protection, it, no. If the cross, though, is a reminder of the incredible work that Jesus did on your behalf, your redemption and your salvation and your forgiveness of sins is beautiful and wonderful because all it is is a symbol of Christ's work and you try to make it anything more than that, it loses its value. It becomes dangerous, right? So Gideon, he's this incredible reminder for me personally, because there are seeds in me that watered incorrectly can grow me crooked. Gideon is this reminder. Matt, your past victories do not make you immune to future face plants. So be humble. And the enemy is always lurking behind us, trying to get us to change God's will into personal ambition. That I'll use this to get what I want, a harem, an ephod, my own little religion, a big house, it's always there. Make much of me, worship me, make money off this, right? So a wise man once told me something. He said, Matt, don't ever touch the gold, the gals, or the glory. What's the three things that Gideon does? Touches the gold, touches the gals, got a whole bunch of them, and he wants the glory. Wisdom. The Bible says this. Jesus says this. Hunger and thirst 
after righteousness and you shall be filled. I have a saying I've repeated. My goal is to stay humble and hungry until Jesus takes me home. I have not arrived. There's more to learn. There's more to do. There's more to grow. There's more to be changed. There's more to transform in me. I want to stay humble and hungry. And my barometer is my dependence on God in prayer. Gideon crosses the Rift Valley and leaves that behind. Here's the good news. You can go right back. If you're saying, I've left, I'm not praying, I'm not doing it. Here's the brilliant thing about God. He says, come home. You can come boldly before my throne of grace. Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. My ear is open to your cries over and over. God says, you can come right back. You can pray. I will strengthen you. I will meet you. I will guide you. That's the gracious, beautiful nature of our God. He runs to the repentant sinner. Good news. So Jesus today, I pray for myself that I would not let the incredible things that you have done and are doing at Edgewater plant in my heart something crooked. I pray for each of us, Lord, and how you're using us and victories that we're seeing. I pray that that would lead us to a greater dependence upon you, not less. I pray for the leaders in our city, Lord, the other pastors. We know that we have a real enemy who is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. I pray that the pastors in Grants Pass, in Josephine County, in Jackson County, that we would be men of humility. That we be like John the Baptist, we must decrease and you must increase. That apart from you, we can do nothing. I pray that we would practice the discipline of humbling ourselves and giving you the opportunity in due season to lift us up. I pray, Lord, for our country today. There are more ways to be divided than ever before. There's more Ephraims and Succoths and Penuels and Gideons, each wanting their own little thing. I pray that believers would be the antidote to that. That we would be leaving self-centeredness, incorrect ambition, and our goal would be to see your name glorified our goal would be to see your kingdom built, your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that would be the antidote to the chaos we see around us. So send us out tonight, Lord, as an army of peacemakers. 
willing to speak the truth in love, willing to have good conversations, willing to be your ambassadors to a dark world. So I pray for each person in here tonight, would we be filled with your spirit? The same spirit that came upon Gideon where he with just 300 men changed a nation for 40 years. Flawed, no doubt, imperfect, no doubt, but empowered by your spirit. I pray that your same spirit would fill each of us and we would see our areas having rest, shalom, that we learn the lessons from Gideon and not cross the Rift Valley, but stay in the promised land of prayer. So send us out. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.